Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Before we get going on this episode of Culture Bites, I just want to let you know that we're running our annual leadership and culture conferences in New Zealand and Australia. So they're coming up in August, so end of August for Melbourne on the 29th. Sydney's on the 5th of September. And we also have conferences in New Zealand, so Christchurch on 9th of September, Auckland on the 10th, and Wellington on the 11th. We've got lots of great speakers coming along, so make sure you check that out. There'll be a link in the notes of this podcast. All right, on with today's show. Welcome to Culture Bites. And welcome to the Jersey Professional Podcast. So we've got a bit of a simultaneous podcast going on here. So we've got Kwame, who's the uh, host of the GRC Professional Podcast, joining us, and, and then we're joining him as well. Yeah, so uh, really just addressing the issues that we are all in this room concerned about, that issue of culture and what are organizations doing about trying to change their culture, you know, post-Royal Commission, um, post the self-assessment reports that APRA would have released last month. And of course, based getting a sense of what you guys have been seeing um, in terms of the organizations that you've been talking to. Yeah, uh, so I love it. So it's the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute. So it's, you know, all the stuff around Royal Commissions, you know, how are we addressing the cultural issues? that were at the heart of some of the stuff going on there. And so we thought, why not do a combined podcast? Because I think it's interesting for both our audiences. And so we've uh, brought along David Byram, who's the general manager of Human Synergistics Australia and New Zealand and an expert in culture. Hey, David. Hi, all. This is a great experience having uh, simultaneous podcasting <laughs> with Culture Bites and the GRC podcast. Looking forward to... Uh, a good conversation with both of you. I don't know if it's ever been done before, doing two podcasts at the same time. <laughs> I love it though. <laughs> it is a first. It's good. Great to be here. So I don't know if we want to just jump straight into it. Yeah, let's really. go for um, it. So one of the reasons why I sort of wanted to have this kind of conversation is that um, last month, APRA released this information paper called the Self-Assessments of Governance, Accountability and Culture. And it was based on some self-assessments that about 36 ADIs that they regulate had really done on themselves, looking at their sort of, I guess, their governance, accountability and culture issues. The report was not, I guess, it wasn't great. It did show mm. that there were definitely some systemic issues and there were definitely some issues that sort of kind of reflect the issues that APRA would have found in CBA. And of course, we all know that APRA did their assessment in CBA because of the Austrack action that was taken against them, mm. which of course led up to the $700 million fine in the end and the suggestion that Austrack Just a small fine. <laughs> and a suggestion that there is more Austrack action in future. And I wouldn't be surprised if they find some of the same things again. So why I thought it'd be great to have a chat with you, David, is that it's back to that question of culture, or as APRA calls it, risk culture, which I know is your favorite phrase. And I think maybe we can start there about you know that question of risk culture and why you do not like the term risk culture. Yeah, uh, great leading, Kwame. You've uh, triggered me straight away. <laughs> Unfortunately, the terminology risk culture is in the market. And I think it shows that organizations, leaders, boards are still struggling with this term of culture and what is culture. So we know culture is the expected behaviors in the organization. And what I get uh, concerned about is the flagging of risk culture as a discrete entity of culture. Risk is an outcome of the culture you've got. So does your culture influence risk? Absolutely. 
your ability to manage the risk you have, the level of risk you accept, how you make sure that you're looking after your shareholders, your employees, and your customers. And on that way of risk, in inverted commas, is all driven by your culture. So I like to say risk is an outcome of culture rather than driving for a risk culture. Because the challenge would be that I'd give to every organization is there's also innovation culture. There's diversity culture. There's customer centricity culture. And the list can go on. Operational excellence culture. Safety culture. The challenge is all those precursors, diversity, innovation, customer service, operational safety, they are actually all outcomes of the behaviors that are created or expected within the organization. So it's fraught with danger if you try and just target risk. Those behaviors actually drive all the outcomes. If you have the right behaviors, you'll exceed in all those outcomes. So not surprised with the self-assessment is what I would say. It's probably come out a little bit more critical than probably what the truth, it's probably worse than what it is, is what I'd say. So the self-assessment says we're not as good as we could be. I think if they did something more robust from a diagnostic point of view and really got under the hood and did a broader measure of the behaviors in the organization and what's going on in the organization, I think we'd all be scared and find out that it's probably more security orientated than what we think it is. Right. So what do you mean by security orientated? Yeah, good question. The drive to uh, protect, be safe, avoid, not get caught out, stand out in the crowd. So we talk about from the lens of the circumplex, the degree to which we can be satisfied, uh, driven by expectations of satisfied satisfaction needs. So growth, care, development, challenge, curiosity, courage. The flip of satisfaction is security, often insecurity. So degree at which people are motivated by those security needs, which would be don't get caught out, don't make the wrong decision, or stand out in the crowd. And I think one of the interesting things for me is there's probably been a slight shift since the start of the Banking oh. Royal Commission, which time, like, it's probably two years now, I'd guess. It's, it's approaching that time frame since this has been a bit of a topic, is probably in the after the, the GFC in 2009, the bank sort of went into a lull and got probably quite, in our language, aggressive and task-orientated we can do no wrong, let's stand out and we can set the rules we'll play by and we'll modify and adapt the rules and they're our rules and do what we say and quite aggressive. And then we know what's happened. Uh, we know what's happened with some of our biggest financial institutions and the impact of that. So what's happened is they've gone from an aggressive stance, we can do no wrong, probably to a slightly passive stance. Mm. And now all of a sudden, risk culture is becoming more and more of a topic, unfortunately, and organizations are coming, and I know you're with GRC, so I apologize if you use the word <laughs> compliance, but we're becoming probably far more compliance-centric. And so what we're doing, we're putting in more policies, more procedures, more checkpoints, which is driving us now to avoid, not be courageous, not be curious, not to explore. So we're still security-orientated from the extent that I can do no wrong to now that I can't get it wrong but we're still flipping between security orientation. And those that are aware of the circumplex, we're flipping between aggressive defensive cultures and passive defensive cultures. So an early prediction, I don't know if it'll be true, 
in some point in time, that passive defensive culture will become frustrating and annoying and organizations will become vulnerable. Will it flip back to a, an aggressive defensive culture mm. and the pressure will come on to drive more? The bigger challenge for organizations is how do we break out of the cycle of security and get more to satisfaction? Let's make a difference that's meaningful, that support, grow, and develop our employees, our customers, and support our shareholders, and be courageous in doing that. No, and I'm glad you actually brought up complaints in that context, because there is a bit of an existential question at the moment of the role of the compliance professional within the organization as not the person who sits in the cubby who ticks those boxes for you, but actually Ah. the person who goes beyond that administrative element and supposedly actually looks forward to all the other potential things. So the idea is that we are the governance and risk because there's this idea that there's both this thing that you have to comply with, but also the opportunities that come with the fact that you have to comply with this law. What are the opportunities in that space? But I realize that sounds really defensive, so I'm going to move on from there. <laughs> no, no, I think, and it's, uh, yeah. it's a really good point. We need good structure and process. And look, I'm a process guy at heart, so there's nothing wrong with excellent structure, mm-hmm. process, governance. We need it. It's when that structure, process, and governance becomes, as you refer to it, the box-ticking exercise. Did we comply or did we not? That's when we lose our way. When, we, when the rule becomes more important than the intent of what we're trying to do. So the challenge for professionals in the governance, risk, and compliance area is how do we recognize and adapt and change and grow and continually enhance the practices and processes we have, not be bound by the process. An example, I won't say who, but uh, I recently had to uh, take out a financial transaction and uh, to help me with the purchase of a, an item. And it was interesting, the, uh, the lady asked me, she said, uh, can I ask you some questions to, for finance? I went, absolutely. She said, what's your name? Gave her my name and date of birth, date of birth. And she said, can you sign this piece of paper that I've asked you these privacy, these questions? I went, absolutely. So I signed a bit of paper. She goes, Thank you for that. Now, can I ask you some more questions to see if I can process to the financial application? So I went through another series of questions around why I wanted the loan, et cetera, and all these checks and balances, mm. which I signed again. And I said, why was those first two questionnaires completed? She goes, well, I need to do that to prove that I've actually asked those questions, which why did they need to be done? Yeah. We could have went straight into, how can I help you? What do you need? Let's move forward. Yeah. So trying to find some way to marry the things that you're supposed to do, but then not hindering the sort of consumer experience, making sure you still have a good experience while they actually meet the requirements they have to meet. That's the trick there. And that's the balance. And look, I I was speaking with a lady and unfortunately, she was as frustrated as what I was as a customer. Mm. And I was was quite giving the space I work with the culture. I was curious. Why are you asking me these questions and then ask me to sign this form? And it was like, so people know that I've done it. And that's sometimes the sign of that passive rule-bound culture where we're, yeah. we're doing the rule even though we don't think it makes sense. Yeah. Right, and yeah. we're still doing it. David, I had a question for, because we've talked about, you know, we've got to be careful not to just drive compliance to the rule rather than the why. But for risk and compliance professionals, their, I guess, biggest tool is bringing in the policy, bringing in this kind of stuff. So what are other ways they could approach that? You know, how, how can they impact this culture thing with other tools maybe available to them? Yeah, I think 
one of their biggest tools is no doubt the policy, the procedure, or, and it's a bit of security net. I was trying to think of an analogy there with the trapeze and the net, but I think probably it's a safety net and treat it as a safety net. The biggest advocate they have is actually getting out and talking to the business units and understanding from the business units what works for them and what do they need to deliver and what's the best way to deliver that and not be that gatekeeper custodian. So be the, be the central keeper, the governance body, but don't be the blocker. So the only way not to be the blocker is to get out and understand. So have the courage to go out and explore versus the, the will to go out and just check, are we compliant? Mm-hmm. So have that inquisitive, curious, how can it be different mindset? Almost like go out with a mindset, we have governance, we have some policies, but how could these be different? All right? How could we improve these and yield a better experience for the employee, the customer, and ultimately the shareholder? And how about, because you know, just thinking back to your earlier point, there's no such thing as a risk culture, there's just culture. But I'm a risk compliance person. So what the heck can I do about you know, this giant culture thing? Who's responsible for it? Isn't that HR? Uh, everyone has a role to play in culture. I would say it's not HR. I'd say it's definitely not HR. Unfortunately, a bit like risk, it gets given to the risk guys and the compliance guys, or the governance guys. Culture gets given to the HR guys. Everyone's responsible for culture, but it starts with the leadership team. And it really does start at the board level. If the board is more compliance-based, it's going to drive more compliance. So I won't mention any names, but I've seen a couple of recent board reports around risk. And what they're really looking for is, have we complied with our policies and procedures? And compliance with policy and procedure doesn't necessarily mean you're managing your risk well. So there's really no measure on the behaviors that are going on at a board level. And I'd refer to those boards as more old school boards, more the traditional, all right, let's make sure we're governance checking. How do we know it's been done? Prove to me that it's been done. The newer school boards are actually quite inquisitive. All right, they're asking more the questions of how and why and what's a better way to do it. And those boards are getting more and more, but I'd still say they're in the minority. Mm. The majority of boards are still probably compliance, risk checking. Majority, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up boards because it lends nicely back into the report that we were discussing earlier. And one of the issues they brought up was this question that accountability within the organization is not always clear. And of course, that is a bit tricky because if we're going to have this second phase of the banking executive accountability regime coming out in July, and of course, we've already had the first phase for the big banks last year, July, where you're supposed to be able to point out who that accountable person is. I mean, what does that mean in that context? Have you found in terms of your work with organizations that people have a sense of accountability and what that means for them? Yeah. So organizations that are more defensive, more security orientated, are going to be looking to pinpoint an individual, right? Who can we blame? All right. So it's right. It's your job. Did you do it? Yes or no? And the consequences are, and it's more security orientated. And it will either drive passive or aggressive. Organizations that are more constructive and satisfaction orientated will take responsibility and therefore be accountable because I have the responsibility to make the difference. So individuals will be accountable still, but they'll actually take responsibility to actually look forward and make a difference. And they'll be accountable for the difference they're going to make, 
not accountable for the policy process system. So there's a quite this interesting segue between I'm responsible or I'm accountable. And people often use the words interchangeably. Mm. Um, now you want responsibility and accountability. Mm. I want to step up. So the interesting thing for these organizations is saying we are responsible for our culture. And leaders have got a role model. Dare I say, it starts at the board again, but the executive suite and then the direct reports to the executive suite do have to a role model the expected behaviors. So if the leaders are saying, no, we can't do it this way and no, we can't do it that way, that's just going to drive more compliance and more security. If the leaders are saying, tell me more why it should change, help me to understand how it can change, how can it be better, it's going to drive more curiosity. It's going to drive more exploration. And dare I say, it's going to drive better shareholder return. And I guess it'll be a bit tricky because the regulation is based on a hierarchical assumption of structures of organizations. And from what I understand, many financial institutions are becoming less hierarchical. So how do you even figure that one out? Mm. Yeah. So the less hierarchical could potentially drive more constructive, all right? We're all responsible, we're all accountable. That hierarchical, this is my area of domain and this is my silo is dangerous. So if we're quite hierarchical and quite silo driven, it's easy to see how that will drive a security-based culture. Whereas if this is my responsibility and step out of my, my area of influence. And for the, this is where I would feel for the compliance team. Your job is to build the process and record our use of the process. Don't come and talk to us about the process. Whereas yeah. the governance risk and compliance guys have as equal view on the process as the people who use the process. So the flatter you go, the more cross-functional you become ultimately, the stronger the organization will be. Mm. Well, I, if I might jump in one more time there, you used the word responsibility and accountability earlier, and I, I liked that because it gives me an excuse to say this now. Uh, one of the things that uh, risk and compliance, well, compliance has to deal with, or I guess organizations in general, is this concept of the three lines of defense. The GRC Institute, and I think a couple others, don't really like that phrase very much because it is defensive. It's defensive. It's security-oriented. And in fact, I think some of our members, um, they wrote some academic papers over the years calling it the three lines of responsibility oh. because a kind of a reminder to the organization that it's actually not the compliance risk professional's job to do this. It's everyone in the organization's job to make sure that while you're doing your day-to-day -day duties, that you're also making sure that these things are correct and set up as well. You are responsible. <laughs> yeah. I look, equally, we have one of our partner organizations, part of our accredited network. And... Uh, Align with that responsibility versus accountability and the three lines of responsibility versus the three lines of defense. A parallel analogy is the burning platform versus the burning ambition, which I'll give credit to uh, Dr. Peter Fuda for. So Peter talks about a burning ambition versus a burning platform. And if you have a burning platform, it's almost implying you're running, around, running away from something, trying to protect yourself. Whereas a burning ambition becomes an internal drive to be different and grow. And if you look about the three lines of defense, it's almost implying we've got to protect versus the three lines of responsibility or the three opportunities of growth or our areas of greatest influence are implies we're going towards something, not stopping something. So it's words are powerful and leaders use words every day. So... If leaders come out and use the words we need to comply with, it's going to drive the tone and the behaviors 
if the language is more around how might we, what could we do, our structure and our goals are too, which is different to we need to comply with. Did that answer your question, Kwame? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I mean, that's the interesting thing about the Royal Commissions and stuff going on right now is it's easy to go to the burning platform, right? It's really tempting to go, it's on file, let's jump. But that may lead you down a security-oriented path, right? Because you're trying to keep yourself safe. So instead, it's reframing, right? This is an opportunity. It's a it's a watershed moment where actually there will be energy inside organizations to make a change. Yeah, I think it's a it's a massive opportunity in that watershed moment to shift the dynamics and mm. be constructive. The organizations that have the courage, and I probably put fortitude mm. in there, the stamina to actually get really good measures of where they're at now and implement some plans to be different and more towards that satisfaction needs, they will stand the test of time and get ahead of their competitors. There's no doubt. We've seen data, organizations of constructive versus non-constructive, and the constructive will sustain and lead over time. Mm. And they'll just, organizations that take that mark now and move forward will grow faster and customers will be gravi- gravitate to them. They'll have employees wanting to work for them. There'll be reduced turnover. Their savings will be astronomical. So not only will they have higher revenue, they'll have a lower cost to serve, which is the biggest challenge. In most industries today, it's, it's the margin split. So we're talking percentage points in that margin. In financial sector, we're talking even smaller margins. It's quite competitive. So how do we actually leverage every advantage we can get? Well, I guess my last um, sort of question really, um, you mentioned earlier about the, the old boards and the new boards and the different attitudes between the two. And it's interesting, um, I had a conversation with somebody who's in that sort of organizational psychology space, and he was concerned because he thought that there was less and less conversation in the organizations he works with around culture. He was a bit concerned that it was sort of disappearing. Um, and then somebody was saying this morning, actually, that with the fact that labor didn't get in, who'd made all these promises in terms of um, <laughs> corporate regulation, mm. that maybe some of these conversations might just disappear, you know, that all the work that Royal Commission yeah that many people didn't necessarily want in the first place might sort of just filter away. Do you see a change in, and we, I think we sort of started with this, do you think that this change in attitude, these new boards who are asking questions, who are inquisitive, do you think this is going to be sustainable? Do you think this is going to continue five years on, or are we going to find ourselves in the same predicament that led us to the Royal Commission in the first place? That's a great question. Sounds like a political hot potato. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm, my hope and my desire is we're on, a, we're on a path to change and continue to explore. And I think there are a lot of clients that are looking to explore and they're looking for that, they're looking for that edge to be a leader in their market across sectors, not just in financial or insurance sectors. But there will be some clients who will turn off. Yeah. Their, their culture is probably more defensive. So we don't need to explore. And we'll be okay. We'll stay where we are. We'll do the bare minimum that yeah. we need to do to, to comply. To comply, yeah. There'll be other organizations who challenge themselves to be different. And the, the culture exists, right? So we know it's there. It's, it's in sporting teams. It's in political parties. It's in organizations. And you can, it's there. Now, most people use the word culture too loosely, but it's there. The challenge I would put to everybody 
and one of my catchphrase sayings is, are you in charge of your culture or is your culture in charge of you? Now, organizations that get in charge of their culture will adapt, grow, and enhance. Organizations where their culture is in charge of them, in other words, the culture is stronger than the desire to change, you'll stay where you are. You'll stay passive, you'll stay aggressive, and ultimately you won't, you won't survive. You might survive in the short term and get great results, um, but then you might end up with a fine of 700 odd million dollars as well. So I'd probably leave and say, get in charge of your culture. You can change culture, you can sustain your culture, but if you do nothing, your culture will be in charge of you. All right. I think that's, uh, that's it for the Culture Bites podcast. And the Jersey Professional podcast. Thank you very much. So thanks, guys. I love it. Simultaneous podcast. Maybe we should do more. <laughs> Kwame, Dominic, thank you very much for the invite and uh, hope your listeners enjoyed the experience. It was a great, great podcast. Well done, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.